Well, what is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. You made it. Look at you guys. We are going to have some fun today. If we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Peter Haas. And uh, we are in week two of our teaching series called History Maker. And really, uh, the, the gist is this, okay? Here's where we're going with this series. We're just talking about how to get into alignment with God, be a part of his movement on earth. And because and, there's no greater way to spend your life, there's no greater joy than to discover your purpose and get on mission with God. Uh, and I, I, you know, really with, this, with the title History Maker, what we're doing is, is we're studying different history makers uh, throughout both the Bible and church history. Uh, and, and of course, you know, it, it really makes sense to study those who've really done a great job before us. And many of you guys know I'm kind of a church history nerd. I love reading books. And uh, I, I love studying what God has done throughout history in different movements. And, uh, you know, I, really part of the reason why I love it is because I, I love just trying to learn what are some of the transcendent principles that allow you and I to get on mission with God. And, and if we can find those universal principles that God blesses, then maybe God will do the same thing in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't want to waste my life. I want to be a part of what God is doing on the earth. And so, you know, over the last 30 years of, of me being in full-time ministry, I, I've been obsessing over this question. What are the common denominators of all history-making churches, what are the, what are the, and not just, you know, what are the counterintuitive criteria, if I could put it that way, of history-making churches, and, and so I'm, I don't want to talk about obvious things in this series, like obviously history-making churches prayed and did evangelism, those types of things, but I, I'm looking at like the less obvious stuff, and so this week and in the weeks to come, I'm going to actually be sharing seven different behaviors that I've discovered over the years uh, of history-making churches, and a lot of these, a lot of these seven things that I'm going to share with you are actually data-driven observation. Okay, so these aren't just merely my observations by reading church history books. There's real research behind each of the things that I'm about to share with you and a lot of Bible passages that support them, okay? So ultimately, my goal here, though, I, I, my, my goal here is not to get philosophical about church. My goal is, after sharing these things, I want to invite you into the exciting, thrilling, crazy vision of this church. You know what I'm saying? And, and even more important, I, I just get this sense that by the end of the series, some of you are going to come alive for the first time in your life. You're going to say, I get it. I know why God put me on planet Earth, and, and that's where everything gets really, 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 really exciting. So are you guys ready? <laughs> if you're not, I'm ready, but you guys, I'll get you there. Don't worry. Okay, so here we go. Before we start, before I share, I'm actually going to share three of the seven today, okay? Three of the seven principles of history-making churches. But before we start, I want to show you a little line graph that will show you the typical life expectancy of the average church in, in the world right now, okay? There was a brilliant study called the American Church Research Project. Um, a while ago, this book came out, and there was a research team that, at the time, they, they got the database of over 200,000 churches. They mapped out all 3, 
1,143 counties of the United States, what churches were growing, where, and why. And they wanted to really figure this out, okay? Now, since then, it's grown to over 400,000 uh, churches. But ultimately, they wanted to find out what are the data-driven differences between growing churches and non-growing churches, and why. And they came up with a lot of startling revelations. And let me just show you one thing. And there's numerous studies that actually have proven this since, but the typical church life cycle, the typical evangelistic life expectancy of an American church is 17 to 21 years. They'll stop fulfilling the Great Commission after 17 to 21 years. Now, they'll believe in the Great Commission for the entire history. A lot of them will. Okay, but they'll generally stop fulfilling it around year 17, okay? So they go into what's called an eternal plateau at around year 17 to 21. And, and, and don't get me wrong, they still will get new people. So in the eternal plateau, they'll still get new people, but they'll lose people at the same rate that they're gaining them. And generally speaking, after year 21, the new people they gain are already Christians, so it's called transfer growth. They're not actually leading non-Christians to Christ. They're just switching out Christians uh, every, you know, every year for up until they die, okay? So, and, and if you're wondering, well, why in the world do they stop growing at year 17 to 21? Well, that's, that's the great mystery, okay? I've actually written two different books on that now, uh, on church governance, on what, what happens in year 17 to 21. But generally speaking, very few churches will grow without its founding pastor intact. In other words, the couple that planted the church, generally, it's very rare for any church to grow after the founding pastor um, retires, okay? So generally speaking, that's retirement for a lot of churches, okay? So, um, and of course, now, there, there are exceptions to the rule, but the exceptions to the rule that grow after 17 have follow a very, very, very specific recipe, and they almost always have a certain type of church governance that allows them to do it. Now, some of you are doing the math, and you're thinking, well, Pastor Peter, didn't you plant this church 19 years ago? Well, yes, but I'm still the founding pastor. Um, and, but I, I, we have actually designed substance to thrive even after I'm gone, okay? So, uh, and we have all the stats that, uh, how, what are the churches that are the exceptions to the rule? What are they doing, okay? Like even just, I mean, the good news is, is I mean, over summer, we had over 500 people go through our newcomers uh, program just this last summer alone and over twice as many salvations. I mean, think about that. You guys, I mean, our, our church is in revival, and it is possible to age well, but 99% of churches over 21 years are not set up for this, okay? So, and, and this is kind of one of my missions. If you're wondering why I preach to pastors, I speak almost every week. I fly somewhere to speak to pastors. It's really on this issue, okay? So now, uh, and, and recently, I, I spoke about this at a conference uh, to pastors here, and I thought, gosh, why don't you just share that with your entire church? They might understand a little bit more the why behind the what, okay? So now, um, coming back to that, this study, what was interesting is they found that the bulk of conversion growth happened in the first 10 years of the church, which is kind of weird because it's when the church has very little assets. Usually, they don't have buildings. And uh, so what, what's going on there? Well, they found that church plants are six to eight times more effective at evangelism 
than, than long-term existing established churches. Well, why? Because church planters know uh, if they don't grow, they won't have food on the table, okay? I can just tell you that as a church planter. You're desperate. The people in the church are desperate. Everybody's on mission. Everybody is invited to serve. There's no spectators in a church plant, um, excuse me, <clears throat> in a church plant because there's no room for it, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no assets to fall back on. There's nothing, right? And so there's an urgency and so, again, the reason why church planning matters is because it's the heart of evangelism in a country, okay? And again, there's, there's ways to change that and still be effective, once again, because we're in year 19, and we just had like a thousand salvations, that, you know, just in the last couple of months. Uh, but in church planning circles, there's this expression, why church planting? Well, it's easier to have babies than raise the dead, Okay? <laughs> Now, I, I know that's kind of cynical, but uh, you get the idea. Some of you are like, yeah, both of those are kind of exciting. But I, I just, you know what I mean, okay? So, it, it, like, church planting is super important, and here's why, okay? Here's the data. This is the, this is the mic drop stat that'll just change how you think, okay? A mere 3% increase in a city's church plants will double a city's number of active Christians within a single generation, a mere 3% increase in a city's church plants will double the city's number of active Christians in a single generation. Come on, a singular church like ours could do this just by launching campuses just in different parts of the city. Think about it, okay? So like in the Twin Cities right now, they're, they're like uh, current data estimate is that there's about 150,000 active Bible-believing Christians who attend church on a weekly basis, 150,000. Uh, that means a mere 3% increase would raise that to 300,000 Christians in a singular generation. Okay, now, the bad news in all this is that most churches won't do this. Why? Because, coming back to the life cycle, again, over 21, they, if they have the wrong recipe for their governance and they're not, do, they're not following the exceptions to the rule, what it takes to get there, uh, they usually can't afford to lose a couple hundred families to a church plant or another campus because they're just trying to keep their own ship afloat. You know what I'm saying? In other words, they, they're stuck in this eternal plateau, and, and then it becomes what we call a black hole church. Lots of energy, lots of money, but no light. Okay, in other words, they, 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 it's like a treadmill that they're always running on. They're doing lots of effort, but not actually really changing the, the environment around them. And all, in the coming weeks, I'm going to explain, you know, why and what, what will actually help change. But today, it suffices to say that, that here's the statement that you just need to remember. The growth of the demise of almost every movement in history comes down to how much it prioritizes church planting or campus planting, okay? Campuses of a church is kind of the new model. It's the safer model of church planting. But, and don't get me wrong, so if you study church history, there's a lot of big events and big personalities in church history. But many of those famous Christians and famous revivals didn't actually change the church from a numeric standpoint. Again, there's been lots of quote-unquote revivals that didn't actually numerically change the church. But you want to know which ones did? It was the ones that happened alongside a church planting movement. And so remember, I'm sharing the seven counterintuitive uh, behaviors of history-making churches. The first one is this. They always prioritized church planting. 
They always prioritize church planning. Now, if you're extra curious and you're kind of a nerdy person like me and you want to read these history books, I encourage you to check out a book called The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Uh, he's a data-driven historian, um, but he writes in a way that is fun to read, even if you hate reading, okay? So I promise you it's actually an easy read. But as a, so now, because he actually shows every movement in history and what happens when they planted lots of churches. Now, but he also found an, another interesting principle that was, that really kind of stuck out to me. And, and real fast, though, as a, as a praise report, get this, your money, if you want to know uh, kind of how we spend money around here, uh, you know, people wonder, where does the money going? in the offering. Well, we're very, very intentional. I, I, I see my life as kind of a, 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 an investor of sorts, okay? My job is to get you guys the highest return on your investment, eternal return on your investment. In 2022, we planted 53 churches, okay? 53 churches in 2022. These are church planters that we helped them. We, we helped set up their you know, if, if they were in America, they're 501c3s. We help them get their accounting set up and their, their governance, their safeguards. Um, and on average, those church plants launched with uh, the average first-day attendance of 262 people, okay? So we're not talking about launching small groups. We're talking about launching, you know, sizable corporate churches. Now, the, the good news is even better than that. In 2023, we're, we're actually breaking all of our records, okay? So in 2023, your money launched another additional 50 churches. But get this, the average launch Sunday, the first Sunday that they launched, they launched with an average of 400 people. Because we're, we're getting a really good batch of church planters right now. But here's, here's the best part. Before we give money to these church planters, this is what we do. We force them to get a plan to be self-sustaining within one year. If they're not willing to do that, we won't give them anything. We'll coach them, but we won't give them anything. In other words, they have to be self-sustaining within one year. They have to have a, in other words, they actually have to have accountability and a business plan, okay? And then at the end of one year, we say, whatever money we give to you, we want you to pay forward into another church planner. Are you willing to do that? And if they say yes, then we're like, all right, go for it. And of course, almost always they're self-sustaining and they're paying it forward. And then after do, doing that, we ask them to sow 10% into missions and outreach. Just make sure you're always doing missions and outreach. And get this, okay, of the 1,900 or of the 100, blah, let me start over again. Of the <laughs> 1,097 churches that we've already launched, they give an annual number of $20 million towards missions on a yearly basis, okay? So now, this is, this is my philosophy. I'm just, I'm, I'm unpacking kind of why we do church a little different, okay? I, I'm always thinking, every week we get hundreds of requests from hundreds of ministries to give them money, but I'm always like, why would I give money to that ministry who will just spend money and need it more later when we could create self-sustaining churches who will not only pay for themselves within a year, but then multiply it and pay it forward the rest of our existence? Come on, all I'm saying is, is let's do missions and evangelism that is done in a stewardship sort of way. And what stewardship means, it means self-sustaining and multiplying, okay, from a financial standpoint, okay? Ultimately, there's a lot of churches that just don't practice that anymore. And so you can see why the churches that, that do stewardship evangelism, stewardship missions, naturally tend to change history. 
Why? Because they're just they're thinking about the big picture, not the short-term goals. Okay, uh, and, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit more. But maybe you're out there and you're like, yeah, but how do I practice that, Pastor Peter? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Okay, every time a church adds a new service or a new campus, it is a church plant. What do I mean by a new service? Well, just, oh, we're, we're going to have to add a third service here at Northtown in just a little bit, right? And we're going to have to probably launch, when I heard that 500 people came to our newcomers over summer, and that's like the dead time, you know what I'm saying? I immediately thought, dang, you guys are inviting your friends. That means we got to get ready for our east side campus way sooner. You know what I'm saying? Okay, now, I, I just, now, Every time we do that, every time we launch a new service or a new campus, remember this. Every healthy campus is built on an army of small group leaders and ministry team leaders. Small group leaders and ministry team leaders. When you guys take off your bib and put on an apron, it forces the staff and I to expand, to add another service, because you guys are doing so well in launching small groups and multiplying your ministry teams that it compels me to launch another service, which in turn compels us to launch another campus, which in turn compels us even then. Then we're like, let's still plant autonomous churches outside of our campuses. You see, I, I just, but every last one of us has to ask the question at some point in our lives, Am I going to be a consumer Christian or am I going to be a contributor Christian? A consumer Christian versus a contributor Christian. Am I going to be a critic or a coach? You know what the difference between a critic and a coach? Both of them have opinions, but this one is involved relationally, is actually doing the work, and this one is just armchair quarterbacking, right? Am I a problem finder or am I a problem solver? Or my favorite way to put it, am I a revival seeker or am I a revival maker? You see, it's an attitude change. Really what we're doing is, is we're, we're doing what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, for even me, the Son of Man, the Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we're doing every Sunday. We come to church not for ourselves, not to be consumers, but to find people that need Jesus in the foyer, to find people that we can invite to our small groups, to find people that we can invite on our ministry team, to dream about new ministry teams that need to happen in this church in order for us to be healthy. You get the idea. You see, or as Paul put it in Acts 20, 35, the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Blessings come from what? Giving. In other words, you will never really experience the blessing and the joy of God until you are in a giving contributor mode. And well, then how do we know if we're a revival maker versus a revival seeker? Well, all you have to do is just listen to how you talk. If I asked you the question, what kind of church are you looking for? Would you say, would you use consumer language or or contributor language? Would you say, well, I just want a church that provides me with this kind of worship and this kind of preaching, and I want this, I want my church to have this kind of approach to politics, and I want the volume to sound like this, and I just want the seat cushions to be moderately soft, but, but also yet firm, okay? Because you understand this doesn't happen on its own. You know what I'm saying? I need support, okay? So, you know, I need, I need this in the foyer, I need that in the kids' ministry, I need this kind of, you know, like people will go on and on and on and on, and which I, I am opinionated too. But you know what? I also know what it takes to do it because I've 
you know, de facto served in every single ministry of this church as we've grown it, right? And this language, consumer language, is great if you're a baby Christian, but true disciples usually will talk with contributor language. If you say, hey, what kind of church do you want? They're like, well, I want a church that's constantly adopting new people. I'm so addicted to the fruit, the format of the church doesn't even matter. I just want fruitfulness. I want revival. I want a church that forces me to constantly have to lead a small group, even when I don't want to. I want a church that requires me to volunteer at the weird service time, you know what I'm saying, at, at 3.49 in the afternoon, you know what I'm saying. I want the church that always has the new weird campus and the odd locations that constantly gives me offers to, you know, contribute more. That's the kind of church I want. You see the difference. Now, unfortunately, a lot of churches are not filled with people like that, and that's partly why most churches in the United States, less than 1% are even growing. Think about that, less than 1%. Now, one of my favorite churches in church history to study that I love is the, uh, in, is the, the Church of England, the Anglican movement called the Clapham Sect. It was a little section in England, and, and back in the 1700s, there was this, this Anglican priest or pastor known as John Newton, John Newton, I, I've got kind of a, a fancy little picture. There's two different Johns that I'm going to talk about today. John Newton was one of the pastors. And keep in mind, in those days, the Anglican Church, uh, the Church of England was deader than a doornail. I mean, deader than dead. It was not growing. It was shrinking fast. Anglican preachers were notorious for being horrible and boring. They spoke in monotone tones and they talked about lofty intellectual things that people didn't care about and, and they were notoriously awful. And everyone in England knew if you really want passionate preaching, which a lot of people didn't, okay, then go to a Methodist church. The Methodists were like the, the spooky churches of the day. They were like the hyper-contemporary, the ones that, you know, like dignified people didn't necessarily go to because they do weird things like raise their hands and uh, you know Methodist churches but like but you have to understand John Newton was the exception within the Anglican church okay he was kind of a firebrand in a very very conservative denomination and of course he wasn't always a Christian in fact actually he was known for his radical conversion story at 20 years old he took a job on a slave ship and he literally would take slaves from Africa over the Atlantic to the, to the New World to the West Indies and of course you know, obviously Christians didn't do that, you know what I'm saying? And, and, uh, and ironically, after years of putting people into chains, he ended up in slavery. He got into hot water one time, and he ended up getting put into slavery himself, and his dad actually had to come find him off the coast of Africa to rescue him out of slavery. And so John Newton, after he went back into the slave trade again, and then he almost died at sea, and after the second time almost dying, he's like, enough's enough. I need God in my life. I'm going to quit the slave trade. He moved back to England, became an Anglican pastor, and decided to devote his life to the church and abolishing slavery. He was an abolitionist. And uh, so he, and he ended up writing his whole experience, his conversion story, in a famous book. And many people, historians, non-Christian historians, actually credit his book as the spark that launched the anti-slavery movement all over the world. 
Okay, so, I mean, John Newton was obviously, you know, a, a real personality. Don't you love it when God takes an amazing sinner and turns them into an amazing saint? I love that. God is doing that with all of us in many ways. And, and when you take a guy like that, put him into a dying denomination, people started taking notice. And one of those people who took notice of John Newton was another guy by the name of John Thornton. Now, what made John Thornton interesting is... Uh, John Thornton was a, a wealthy businessman. He was a merchant. He was into the whole slave stuff, or, or not. He was actually a, like in the in the sense that he was against it. But he was a merchant who had done a lot with with uh, he had done a lot of trading with Russia a, at the time, which was really rare in England. Made a lot of money. But th these two had a lot in common. They weren't just both named John, and they were both Anglicans. But they both hated slavery. They hated boring preachers, and they hated like you know dreary worship. So they immediately hit it off, like, we're like, hey, let's change the Anglican church. Let's see what we can do. And they made it their goal. But where do you start, right, when your whole denomination is dead? Where do they even start? Well, again, at that time in the Church of England, most Anglican pastors were saying the same things. Hey, if we want to grow again, if we want to get people back into the Anglican church, you know what we need to do is we need to stop talking about sin. Because most people in our culture think that's judgmental. And we, we shouldn't be, t you know, be, let's not be a judgmental church. Because that's kind of what the, the reputation that the Methodists were getting at the time. And, and even more, let's get rid of all this supernatural nonsense in the Bible, okay? Rationalism was kind of the new religion. And so let's de-emphasize anything from the Bible that sounds absurd. Nobody wants to talk about miracles, especially demons. That's like medieval stuff, okay? Nobody believes in demons anymore. It's all science. It's just biochemical stuff. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let, let's make sure that we preach that kind of thing. And of course, Newton and Thornton were listening to all this saying, wait a second, hold on, okay? I'm not sure that's true. First off, I'm not sure the Bible actually says that, and I don't think that talking about sin is necessarily judgmental. I don't think that talking about miracles is necessarily anti-science. They were like saying, I think you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. And, and of course, the Methodists, just by way of contrast, that was the denomination that was growing back then. They were doing the exact opposite of what these Anglican pastors were saying, and yet they were thriving. I mean, they're constantly talking about miracles, constantly talking about sin, constantly talking about unknown tongues, yet they're kicking butt, even though they're kind of into some of these things that some people think are spooky. I mean, the Methodists, in that same time period, had just launched over 110 churches across England, while the Anglicans lost 200. Not to mention, you know, and they had, they didn't even have to pay for their buildings, right? I mean, come on, they should be kicking butt. The Anglicans should be kicking the Methodists' butt, right? And yet, Methodists are on top of that, taking over the United States at the time. And and don't get me wrong, Newton was not suggesting that the Anglican church needed a pendulum swing to hellfire brimstone. That's not what he was saying, nor was he saying, hey, let's get spooky. But at the very least, he was saying, hey, time out, guys. Maybe there is something we could learn from the Methodists of our time. And, and if you think about it, this same exact tension is in the church today, isn't it? I mean, if you really think about it, times haven't changed at all. There's just different categories. Unfortunately, the Methodists are on the flip side. Right now, they're dying like crazy, right? But I, I mean, like, it, it's, it, it, times haven't changed, really. The tension still exists in the church. And the way that I like to describe it is using a little continuum here. Um, 
that, that really illustrates how things, and this is really important because in church history, you're going to see how this has a massive impact on whether a church will grow or shrink, okay? On one side of the continuum, we have what we call legalism churches, okay? Legalism churches are what the Pharisees tried to do. Legalism churches, really you could describe them as all truth, no grace. And I think we've all heard of churches like this. There's churches out there that are really weird and that they, all they do is they're just kind of mean. Let's come to church to be mean to one another. And, and, you know, again, they motivate themselves using guilt, okay, which is, the Bible says, is an inferior substitute for grace. But then there's the opposite side uh, of the continuum. Instead of all truth, no compassion, you have all compassion, no truth, okay? This is, th this is the, the liberalism side, and, of course, a lot of churches will fall on one or other side, but I, I think both extremes end up making the same mistake, and this is what it is. Both extremes believe that they are smarter than the Bible and therefore need to either add to it or subtract from it. Okay, so now let me say that again. Both extremes think they're smarter than the Bible and that they either need to add to it, the Pharisees, or subtract from it, the other churches. Okay, now let me just, let me explain this. Okay, so back in Jesus' day, the Pharisee movement started as a revival and, and they knew let's keep the Sabbath holy, right? But the Pharisees said the only way people are going to do it is if we force them to, if we literally legislate it and hold people accountable to it, and therefore they created over a hundred additional rules beyond the Bible for how to apply the Sabbath. So many so, in fact, that when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. I mean, what? You no longer can do good things on the Sabbath? I mean, Jesus was like, that's not sin. You know, he, he preached against the Pharisee, the legalistic approach to Christianity. Now, on the liberal side, they make the same mistake, except rather than adding to Scripture, what they do is they subtract from it. They say, ah, well, you know, the Bible is really old and complicated. Let's just kind of get rid of the tough stuff and just kind of, you know, salad bar it. You know, just take the stuff you like and leave the stuff you don't. You know what I'm saying? In fact, actually, believe it or not, Thomas Jefferson did this. He removed all the passages from the Bible that he thought were absurd or that he disagreed with and published his own Bible in 1820, okay, the Jefferson Bible. Literally, people do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just, again, he was on that side of the continuum. You, you get the idea. Jesus taught us, though, that there is a place in the middle. There is a place of balance. Jesus taught in John 8, 11 that, that, that you don't have to choose between all grace or all truth. You can live in the tension of grace and truth, both and. It doesn't have to be either or. Now, a, most, a lot of people, they find themselves on one side of the continuum because of a wound in their lives or a grudge that they're carrying from someone somewhere. Either nobody told them that the stove was hot and they got sick of being beaten by their alcoholic parents and they said somebody's got to tell someone the truth, right? Or on the other side, they, they were the ones getting beat up, you know what I'm saying? They merely looked at alcohol and they got judged, you know what I'm saying? Like, you get the idea. There's, there's different people on different sides of the continuum that have a, have a hurt usually driving that, but one side is always trying to throw out grace and the other side is always trying to throw out truth, and Jesus said neither ends well. Okay, so now back in Newton's day, in the 1700s England, he was thinking, you know, okay, you Anglicans, you all think you're so smart, you think you're intellectually superior to the Methodists, and yet you support slavery. 
Okay, I mean, which is kind of strange for a liberal church to, you know, be supporting straight uh, slavery. And yet, he's like, you, you think that by preaching comfortable sermons, we're going to win more people. But the trends actually say the opposite. And, and the reason why that observation was so critical for John Newton and is critical for us today is because all throughout history, both history and the data proves every church movement that de-emphasizes sin and the supernatural tends to fade. And you're going to notice this all throughout church history using data that every time a church movement de-emphasizes sin, sacrifice, and supernatural, that it tends to shrink, okay? Uh, so most movements in history began with what's called a holiness tradition. In, in, in theology, in church history, it's called a holiness tradition. It means it's an emphasis on sin, that heaven and hell are real um, by embracing sacrifice, you, you know, by looking in the mirror, by taking up the cross and following Christ, as he said, that, that you're, it's called a holiness tradition. Okay, so the, the Apostle Paul emphasized the holiness tradition. Remember this, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2, in other words, there's a pattern of this world, the way that the world works, the way that the movies the world watches, the music that the world listens to, the things that the world celebrates, and there's the patterns of Christ, okay? So we're not to conform to these, we're to conform to this, which means we're going to look a little different, and, and that's called a holiness tradition, okay? So uh, the, 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 the same thing is true, it's supernatural. It's not just sins, but supernatural. Most church movements that grew started with a charismatic or Pentecostal tradition. That means they believed the miracles of the Bible were real and are for today. They believed in angels and demons, that we cast them out. They believe that they still believe in science. We still believe in science, right? But they also believe that, hey, there are things that we don't yet understand in science, and they're still scientific. It's just we call it miracles until we can figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so it's, the idea is, is that, that most movements started with an emphasis, so the Methodists, they were very, very, very charismatic in the early days, completely different than the Methodists today, right? So now, uh, the, so Rodney Stark, the historian that I mentioned, he calls it the cheapening of religion, the cheapening of religion. He says that every denominational movement will eventually, as it gets larger, wants to become more politically acceptable. And so what happens is, is they cheapen their holiness and their charismatic traditions in order to gain acceptance. You know, let's not offend people. And, and he actually proves this. He actually makes the statement that every movement or denomination that trends away from its holiness tradition or charismatic tradition will generally begin shrinking in a very short window of time. I, I just, I encourage you guys, again, just check it out because the, the historical data is so compelling and it really kind of sums up the trends in almost every single major denomination today. I mean, the evidence is, is, is so obvious. I mean, right now, just so you guys know, almost every mainline denomination may be extinct within the next 20 years on the current trends. That's how fast denominationalism, a lot of them are dying. I mean, like literally, Every mainline denomination that is backed off on sin, sacrifice, and these types of things, the supernatural, they're all imploding. I mean, by, by, by huge percentages every single year. I mean, my goodness. Literally, I'm like, 
I think about, the, I grew up as an ELCA Lutheran. They won't even exist in 20 years. It'll be a real estate conglomerate. Same thing with the Methodists, same thing with the Presbyterians. These large movements of God will literally be nothing more than real estate conglomerates within the next two decades. That's how fast they're imploding. And trust me, I'm not celebrating their demise whatsoever. It makes me very, very sad. But listen, if that's what it takes in order to wake us up and bring us back to Deuteronomy 28, then so be it. Because this is what God said all along. If you want to know why the Israelites died in the wilderness, then God gave this sermon and says, Moses, deliver this to my people and let them make sure they understand this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come on you and will accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then the passage goes on to give out 13 detailed verses of all the ways God will bless you, prosper you, expand you, grace you, give you miracles, give you expansion, give you territory, give you wealth, give you health, give you all sorts of things. I mean, it's really compelling all the way down the next 13 verses. And then, starting in verse 15, he flips it as if it wasn't clear enough, okay? As if we weren't motivated enough. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And, then, and here's the deal. God was not trying to be mean here. He was simply trying to be factual. He was simply trying to say, if you light your couch on fire in the middle of your house, it's not going to go good. Because fire is supposed to be in a fireplace. You've got to have these constraints to it. He wasn't trying to be mean. He was trying to be factual. He was basically saying, hey, listen, don't throw out the compass simply because you don't like what it says. And then on the opposite extreme to the Pharisees, um, you know, don't create a 300-pound compass either and force people to wrap it around their necks. You know what I'm saying? That was unfortunately, you know, it was like people are so creative. If we can't sin through, you know, sin, let's, let's create religious sin. You know what I'm saying? Like we take it to the opposite extreme. So let me, let me just come back one last time to John Newton. So he was asking the question, well, then how then? Do we reignite the Anglican church with the holiness tradition? Like, how do we, how do we get charismatic tradition back in there? How do we, you know, and they, they, they decided, these two men decided, well, how about we start with worship? Let's change the way Anglicans worship. At the time, the way that Anglicans worshiped was really boring and, and outdated. All the songs were old. John Newton was a, a passionate songwriter, and, and, and so uh, John Thornton was like, hey, how about we take all of your music and create a new hymn book and sell it? And, uh, of course, you know, and let's write music for the common man, which is what, you know, Newton did. And so, you know, I mean, an old sailor, sailors were not known for their morality, okay? I'm just saying. Uh, and, and so he was like, I'll write the songs. I, I'll write the songs that the common man will love to sing. And then this guy took his business enterprising and, and, and published it. And, of course, um, instantly the hymn book was a, a hit, and it became a hit all around the world, especially hymn number 41. And believe it or not, you all know hymn number 41. It's called Faith's Review and Expectation. <laughs> and if you're like, Pastor, I don't think I do know that hymn. Well, it's because you know it by a different name. You know it by amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Come on. It saved a wretch like me. 
You see, John Newton wrote that. He wrote that. As strange as it sounds, in those days, not only, so it, it took off all over the world. John Newton immediately, his hymn book was like, people liked it. And uh, even the Methodists loved it, right? As strange as it sounds, in those days, wealthy people could still buy out a pastorate in the Anglican church. It was practice known as simony, um, which was practiced, that's why all throughout the Middle Ages in the Catholic Church, most priests weren't even believers. They were just the son or daughter of a wealthy, you know, landowner, right? Or really just a son, okay? And so Thornton, this businessman, he came to Newton, the preacher, and said, hey, what if we took this broken system of simony? And what if we turned it to our advantage while well, it's still legal in England? What if we took this broken system? What if I took all of my money and purchased as many priesthoods as I can in the Anglican church? Newton, would you be able to find me some fiery preachers who could fill these pulpits? And let's take all these empty cathedrals and buildings all across that are owned by the state church all across England and let's plant a life-giving church on the inside of them. And of course, Newton was like, I'll find them. I got you. I got you. And basically, they started a church planting movement. And get this, okay, get this. By the end of their lives, they planted over 400 preachers into Anglican pulpits. And it is estimated that within one generation, evangelical preachers, uh, it wasn't called that at the time, but it's the modern term, occupied over 25% of Anglican pulpits by the time Newton and Thornton died. And you have to understand, even non-Christian historians will say that the global slave trade was shut down because of this revival, okay? Non-Christian historians will credit these two guys as the ones that did it. In fact, the entire modern-day missions movement in Africa, in India, actually happened because of this, these two guys. This revival, uh, William Carey came out of their church. William Wilberforce came. All these famous people in church history came out of this tradition, and I, I just talk about history makers, but note how they did it, okay? They started by prioritizing church planning. They avoided cheap religion. And our third and final principle today is this. All history-making churches started with teams of preachers and powerhouses, just like these guys. Preachers, powerhouses. Preachers, powerhouses. What are powerhouses? Well, you could, you could call them patrons, people that were wealthy and and were sacrificial supporters, okay? You could call them personalities. A powerhouse could be like a, a singer or an influencer or somebody who's a devoted promoter of the preacher. Then there was politicians, deal makers, negotiators. Throughout history, there's a dozen names for preachers and powerhouses. Some people call it the monk and the merchant. Other people called it the rabbi and the rainmaker. But the point is, when preachers and powerhouses get into unity about the principles that I'm talking about in this series, that, my friends, is when movements happen. And it happened all throughout the Bible, too. Come on, we got Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the builder, the powerhouse. Preacher and a powerhouse. Zephaniah the preacher, King Josiah the powerhouse in 2 Kings 23. In the Gospel of Luke, once again, we see Jesus and his 12 disciples, the preachers, and then we see the powerhouses. They were funded by three wealthy ladies, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. Come on, ladies can be preachers and powerhouses too. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more in the, in the coming weeks. But here's why I'm sharing all this. I really feel like God is giving our church the opportunity to become a history-making church. I think we have the ability to do it. But actually, it requires all of us to individually make that decision. I can't decide that for us. And I really feel like God does want us to launch campuses and churches all over the Twin Cities in the world. 
And when I see you guys, when I look at this church, I think it's filled with future preachers, filled with future powerhouses. But I also know that if we're going to seriously do this, it's going to take a whole lot of people stepping up, putting on that apron, taking off that bib, starting small groups, multiplying ministry teams, dealing with our personal issues so that we can devote ourselves to the work of the ministry, multiplying, stewarding what God has given us. And church, that leads us back to our prayer that I promised that we would pray at the end of each of these messages, the history maker prayer. And it's this, Lord, what big adjustments do I need to make in order to join what you are doing? And I believe that if we could just pray this prayer and get our souls in alignment with the the kingdom of heaven, I'm just telling you, and that might mean sacrifice, right? That might mean, hey, slow your life down a little bit more, make a little extra time to launch that small group or multiply that ministry team, the ministry team that you know is lacking in this church. I mean, my goodness, this church needs so much. There's so many ministries that I I would love to green light, but we just don't have the leaders to do it. And I believe that God actually put the passion in you for a reason. There's a cross with your name on it, and yeah, crosses aren't fun to carry, but guess what? The joy of Christ, the fulfillment that we're all longing for, it can only come by picking up that cross with your name on it. And so what is that cross today? Just close your eyes. Father, do business with us. God, we're, we're saying we don't want to squander our lives. We want to be a part of, of, a, of a true movement that's doing miracles, that's seeing life change. And Father, we know that in order to get in alignment with that movement, we've got to make personal changes, personal sacrifices. And so God, speak to us right now. And I just... I just sense that God is speaking to your conscience. Maybe for some of you, it's, hey, slow your life down. For others of you, it's, hey, get some financial margin back in your life so you can be generous. Still others of you, he's putting people on your heart that you need to call or ministries that you need to launch. And and don't wait for my permission. Just get it going. Father, I just thank you for all the people in this room, especially those who who are maybe newer to Christ and have never really heard a gospel quite like this, I just pray that you take every last one of us, no matter where our hearts are at, and help us take a step closer towards you. And church, pray this after me. Say this. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me that I might be a history maker. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen church we're gonna have some fun over the next couple weeks i can't wait to share more but i have to wait all right love you guys (laughs) campus pastors come on up